I want to share an idea that I thought that I came across on Pesach. So on Pesach, one of the highlights of the Seder is this notion of the four sons. It's a little bit perplexing because you look at the way the Torah presents the conversation that we're supposed to have with our children over Pesach. We're all supposed to have conversations, but there's all different kinds of conversations that we could be having. And there's the simple son, and there's the son that doesn't know what to ask, and there's a wicked one, there's a wise one. And each one of them has provided different dialogue between the parent and the child. And the message that they're trying to convey is all delivered to the child on their level. So, of course, this is a subject that we could try to understand in the lens of, like, pedagogical uh, tactics. Say, well, there's different children, and there's different uh, ways that you have to reach out to various children. I think that's that's kind of one way of looking at this issue. And therefore, different children, different inherent characteristics, you have to approach them differently. You have two children, there's no cookie-cutter way of doing things, Every child is an individual. Every child needs to be approached in the way that is most likely to be efficacious for who they are. That's, I think, one way of looking at it. I want to propose a second way of looking at it that I think is is not necessarily limited to different children or to children at all, but instead it's it's a process that has a beginning and has an end. And I want to present, I want to make a suggestion that maybe these four children are actually not four different children, but one child in four different stages. And not just a child, but any individual and any growth and any objective they're trying to achieve, it has to follow these four steps. And I think if we decipher and deconstruct and reverse engineer a certain process from stage to stage, it could be broadly applicable not only on Pesach, not only with talking to our kids about the Exodus, but very broadly in a whole bevy of different arenas and specifically with ourselves and even more specifically with applying the wisdom of Musr to integrate Torah principles into our life and our behavior. That's my proposal. And I think that it has some basis because if you look at Rashi's commentary on the Tom, the Tom is the simple son. So Rashi explains this is a young child who doesn't know how to ask sophisticated questions, which seems to imply it's not a character type. Rather, it's a character stage. That's, that's I think, lends credence to the theory that it's not four different kinds of kids and there's like an adult Tom and a young Tom. Rather, a Tom, a simple son, is because they're there at a certain stage. So that's my proposal. Now, if you look at Rashi's commentary on one of the verses, I don't remember which verse it is, but I think it's the verse that's uh, that says, which means you tell your son, because of this, because of this. And what does it mean because of this? Why did Hashem take us out of Egypt? Why did the mighty take us out of Egypt? So Rashi says, based upon the verse, because of this. What is this this that's being referred to? So it's referring to matzah and maror, which are the two mitzvahs that we celebrate on Pesach today, the mitzvah of eating matzah and the mitzvah of eating maror, the bitter herbs. And Rashi 
teaches us that the real ultimate objective of the Exodus was not so that we should be free, rather we should be free to do mitzvos. We should be have the religious freedom and the religious motivation and the religious inspiration to do the will of the Almighty. That's what Rashi says. And therefore, I think that maybe we could propose that these are various, these four sons really highlight, represent four stages of growth towards achieving this end, this ba'avurzeh, this doing mitzvahs, this being the wise child. Like the wise child, that's of course, that's the best place to be. Child's wise, they want to learn, they want to grow, they want to know mitzvahs, they ask questions, and you give them answers. But there's no, there's no friction, there's no conflict. That's the destination. And the question is, how do you get there? And I believe that there's three stages. So what I want to do is to begin with the youngest son or the last of the four sons, that's the one that doesn't know how to ask questions, and try to identify in each one of the subsequent stages, kind of as you move higher up the stack, to identify what's the core obstacle that you're trying to overcome. Like, where is this kid failing and how do you kind of, how do you move him from one stage to the next? So if you'll notice, the last of the four sons, it's the She'eno Yodei Elishol. Doesn't know how to ask. So the first three kids, they're a little bit more advanced. They ask. Now they ask different questions. But at least they ask. This fourth son, he's at ground zero. And he's at ground zero because you don't even have his attention. And therefore, what do you have to do? You have to try to elicit his interest. You have to ask for him. You have to open up his interest, pique his interest, pique his curiosity by you initiating even though he's not engaged. And I think this highlights the first stage of any path to wisdom, but really any, any project, any undertaking, any, anything that we want to conquer, the first thing we need to know is we have to be aware of it. We have to have attention. And I think certainly if we want to grow in our character, in our Torah, in our midos, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our relationship with our coworkers. And I would say this applies not only to religious matters or personal matters, in our business. Anything you want to grow, any area you want to improve in, if, you, if you're not aware, if you don't have the attention, if you don't recognize that there's a problem or there's an interest or there's an opportunity or there's some area of potential growth, if there's no awareness, if your mind's elsewhere – how could you possibly even realize that there's something to do here? How could you progress to say, oh, let's deal with this challenge X, Y, or Z if you're not aware of any challenge, you're not aware of any opportunity, if your mind is not focused on the task at hand, how could you possibly ever succeed in achieving the goal? If you're not aware of the goal, if you're not, your mind's not focused on it, there's no attention you can't possibly continue to the next stage. And I think in the world that we live today, I think most Jews, they're at this stage in their growth in Judaism. They're at the, I don't, we don't have their attention. Well, when they come to synagogue, we'll talk to them. That'd be great if they show up. Unfortunately, the sad state of the Jewish nation today is that we cannot expect young Jews across America, for example, to show up to shul and sit down and listen and give us their attention. And that's why it's such a tricky Jewish world that we live in today because 
it's not about the tactics and the strategy. Once you have their attention, how do you navigate the inherent problems? That's a big problem to begin with. But we're really starting with nothing for most, for the most part. We have to try to evoke and elicit interest in other ways. So for example, you know, some of the things that we do in, in our programming, we want to reach out to Jews. But there is a way, there's a, a method that we have to resort to. And that is we have to try to bring them in because there's free food. So people see there's free food. Who doesn't want free food? It's kind of hard to pay for dinner every night. I'll put it on torches bill. Great. And that's, that's an implicit exchange. And the idea is, is that we want people to come here and to experience a Jewish environment and a Jewish opportunities of growing, of interacting with other Jews, of having their attention to Jewish matters. But by doing that, we have to find a different, we have to find some creative way to get their attention. Because just saying, come learn about Judaism or come interact with other Jews, probably not interested. Come get free food. Now maybe we've earned their attention. And I think this certainly applies with children today, but really broadly in, in the world at large. You know, the one thing, the one commodity that doesn't stale at all is time and attention. And if you think about it, the average American, American is sleeping eight hours a day and watching television for four hours a day and on their phone for probably four other, four more hours a day. So you just do the math and then there's eating and then there's school or work. There's only a small sliver of available time, which usually is filled with looking at the phone and scrolling through their feeds and scrolling through their Instagram. And this, I think, is it's 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 comical to a certain degree. But I really think this is the fundamental challenge that our generation <laughs> faces broadly, not just for the Jewish people. And trying to integrate Jewish ideas and Jewish ideals into the future generation, but thinking to people everywhere. If you don't have a spare minute, because every spare minute of white space is filled with checking Facebook, I don't think it's Facebook, but that's a fact. You see this by people by the red light. I have a new policy now. I'm ever like two or three cars behind the first car in line for the red light and the light turns green, I start beeping right away. Because I'm working with the assumption that the guy or the gal who's the first car in line is on their phone. So therefore, instead of waiting that two or three seconds before when someone, when everyone realizes, obviously they're on their phone, we got to give them a beat to get them to move, I just start beep right away. Because And certainly, if I'm, if I'm the fifth guy in line and I know it's a short light, there's no chance that all four of them are there waiting for the right light to turn green. No chance. At least 25% of people are on their phone by a red light. So the only way for me to make the line is my beeping. I do it even if I'll make it anyhow. That's just because I, it's my new policy. Light turns green, like a left turn light. You give a little beep. That's what I do it. I'm not even joking. I'm very serious. I don't beep too aggressively. Just give a little, 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 little kind of tap to remind them. Yeah, just, just kind of, yeah. And, and no one's ever complained because everyone knows that, that that's what you have to do because people are always on their phone. But I think this, it's a, there's a lost opportunity. I think there's going to be a lost intellectual generation because if if the mind is never idle and it's always being bombarded with little itty bits of dopamine, little doses, small little dabbles of of good feeling that we get with our phones, then when is there ever a time 
to stop and to contemplate and to question and to evaluate and to think and to ruminate and to question and to observe and to challenge. When is, when is, when is this going to happen? There's no attention. If there's no attention, then how do you get to any future stage? Because the attention is all being consumed. And by the way, it's actually quite profitable. You could actually look at the various companies who are making a lot of money and you could just break down how much attention they have across the American sphere and how much money they make. Because again, that's the one thing that doesn't scale. And it's the one thing that's the finite commodity is attention. And the more attention you have, the monetization will come. If you have attention, then you're the owner because you decide how you can manipulate that in all kinds of ways. But I think certainly this is the, the number one step. The number one, the kid doesn't know how to ask. And you have to find a way to reach out to them, to pique their awareness and get them to be at least receptive to the notion that you have something to say or you have something to offer and they're willing to listen. I think, you know, here at Torch, that's one of our philosophies. You know, we have some of the most uh, downloaded podcasts in the world, in the Jewish world, that is. And I think that it's it was done, or we stress and emphasize this portion of our output, specifically because it's a different time. If you open up a shop, and you just open your door, and you expect people to come, you expect to get the attention for free, you're probably in the wrong decade, maybe even in the wrong century or millennium, I don't know. <laughs> because people are not going to come here to study Torah unless they're they're courted. Or unless the amount of work on their part is so minimal that it's almost as if it, there's no work at all. And therefore, like we said, okay, let's put the Torah on the phones. They're on their phones all the time, all the time. Instead of trying to throw away the phone, pull it away and say, come study Torah – Let's commandeer the phone. Let's try to find, put the Torah, push it through the phone and kind of use the, the fat, the hamstring that we have as a generation, try to use that to our advantage by trying, well, now there's opportunities. Every single person in the world with a smartphone can listen to Torah classes, listen to torch classes on their phone. So it's a way to kind of try to adapt to this reality. Yes. There is a steadily decrease, um, decreasing amount of attention that we have available, us as Jews, us as parents, I would say, to try to influence our children. Number one, let's try to make the most of, of that, but also let's try to find creative ways to seize on whatever attention is available and to make it easier, not harder, for uh, our message to get out. But that's the first step. The first step of any project, certainly the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of wisdom, has to be attention, number one. That's the she'eno yodea lishol. Once you have the attention, what do you have? The next stage up is you have the tam. The tam is the simple one. You have his attention. And he's open to hear what you have to say. The problem is he doesn't, he doesn't know what to say. He comes and he's in your room and he's listening to you, but he says, mazos, what's this? He has no idea what to even ask. He doesn't ask the right questions. Because he's he's uninformed, he's uninitiated. So what do you tell him? You tell him bechosek yad hatsiyarosh mi which means in a, with a strong hand, 
the Almighty took us out of the land of Egypt from a house of slavery. So if you read it critically, you'll notice that there is a redundancy. It says, Hashem took us out with a strong hand. Okay, good. From the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. Why are you saying Hashem took us out of the land of Egypt from the house of slavery? He took us out of Egypt. We were in Egypt. Now we're out. It seems like you're emphasizing specifically the parts of the message and the holiday and the exodus that are captivating, that are inspiring, that are meaningful, that are dramatic, with a strong hand. What does that mean? You describe all the miracles. You have its attention now. Make the most of it. Tell them all the miracles. Tell them the, the, ten, the, the ten plates. Tell them the splitting of the sea. Dramatize it for him. We were slaves. We weren't just in Egypt. We weren't just there on a tourist visa. We were slaves. It was miserable. They, they engaged in infanticide. They killed Jewish children. We had no hope. We just cried out to God. And they might listen to us. And you're, you're, you're trying to utilize this opportunity to inspire the child as much as possible. And I think... This is the next point. I would say this is Torah study. If someone comes and wants to listen, wants to learn, and wants to grow, you have their attention. Now is the opportunity to inspire them and to give them lessons and to give them insights. And don't you don't tell him, oh, what happened is, oh, we have to eat matzah, and we have to eat maror, and we have to do all these stuff. You don't list to him the mitzvahs. Yes, the end game. The objective is for matzah, it's for maror. That's the end game. And you acknowledge that up front. But if you just start at the end and you just tell him, this is where you need to do. What happened? Y'all have your attention? Okay, here's what you need to do. And you just list all the mitzvahs and all the activities. But there's no meaning behind it. There's no inspiration behind it. Why are we doing that? You don't tell him that. You just say, do it. Don't ask questions. You know what? The child is likely to not be interested, to not be moved. And this, maybe they'll go through the motions for a little bit because they don't want to disappoint you. But it doesn't have any life. It doesn't have any vitality to it. It's not going to certainly have continuity. You turn around, they're not interested in matzah. They don't know why we do matzah. You haven't explained it to them. So the first thing you need to do is inspire. It's, it's trying to awaken an interest in the child to move on, to proceed. And thus, the parent is encouraged to highlight the various elements about the educational message that are likely to pull the child in, to, to reel them in, get them inspired, get, get them to have a warm feeling about it, give them the messages that they need to move to the next step. And the next step, I think, is where it gets really difficult. Because after you have the last one, which is the first one in our model, the last one, there's no attention. You get the attention. Okay, now you have to inspire. You give the inspiration, and then you have the wicked one. And the problem with the wicked one is not that you don't have his attention. And it's not that he doesn't hear your inspiration. The problem is, is that, that he is resistant to your messaging. He says, Pesach is great for you. For you, but not for me. And I think this is kind of the, the most critical stage because really you have everything in place. All the puzzle pieces are in place for the child to flourish. You know, they, they were awakened with inspiration and all you need to do is to take it that last mile where it means something to you. And 
the child is resistant. The child says, no, 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 I, I don't want this. He, and he push, pushes back. And the problem here is that there's no self-application. The child is not taking the lessons home. He's resisting and he's pushing back and he's repelling the message, the inspiration, so that it does not impact them. It's for you, Pesach, not for me. And I think it's interesting that he's called a Russia, which is a wicked one. Because in in the Torah, there is an interesting juxtaposition between two stories in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, Miriam, who's Moshe's older sister, she speaks bad about Moshe. What's the story? The story is that she finds out that Moshe is separated from his wife because he's a prophet. And she's a little bit disturbed by that. Wait a minute, aren't we all prophets? Who does Moshe think that he's better than us? And the truth is Moshe was better than them because Moshe was a much greater prophet. But what happened immediately afterwards, she spoke negatively about Moshe, she was covered in saras, leprosy. And the end of the story there is in Parshas Bahaloscha that even though she was quarantined for seven days, the Jewish nation didn't depart that location until she was healed. And Rashi tells us what merit did Miriam have that everyone waited for her when she was a little girl and her younger brother Moshe was put in a little floating boat in the Nile. She waited for him. Everyone waits for her, which is an interesting example of how God rewards someone. A sister waits for her brother for five minutes. She gets older. A nation of millions will wait for her for seven days. Kind of amplified. Many more times. But she waited. They wait for her. But of course, the amount that they wait for her is greatly exceeds the amount that she waited for her brother. The very next episode is the beginning of the Parsha called Shlach. Moshe sends spies out to the line of Israel. And he sends 12 very righteous leaders of of tribes and they go scour the land and they find a very scary land. There's people dying. The fruits are enormous. The people are enormous. The fortifications are robust and they are convinced that we can capture it. They come back. We know the story. They come back to tell the Jewish people, oh, We'll, we'll never make it. They'll, 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 they'll crush us. We, we felt like little grasshoppers in their eyes and everyone gets all sad and they start crying and it's a disaster. But Rashi asks the question, what is the connection between these two stories? Why is the story of Miriam speaking bad about Moshe resulting in her getting Saras? Why is that put right immediately before the story of the 12 spies that went to scout the land? 10 of them with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, Yahushua and Caleb, 10 of them came back and brought back bad reports and led to a great disaster. So what's the connection? Says Rashi, the very first Rashi in the book, in the, in the, in the Parsha, Rashi says, Lefi shelaksa al diba, which means because Miriam was stricken by matters of talk. Virishaim halalu, and these wicked ones, Ra'u, they saw, Velo Lakhu Musar. 
This is an interesting place. The actual, the actual word Musar appears in Rashi. These wicked ones saw and didn't take Musar. It's interesting. These people at the time were very righteous. Yet Rashi calls them a Rasha. What that means is that Rasha is not necessarily reflective of someone's sin. Rather, it's reflective of someone's resistance to take a lesson home and apply it to themselves. Everyone knew what happened to Miriam. Everyone saw it. There was a tension. And you know what? Miriam, she's so righteous. She's called on the Torah. Miriam Hanevio, Miriam the prophetess. She's Moshe's older sister. Obviously, she didn't mean any, there was no animosity between her and her brother. She loved him. She cared for him. Of course, she didn't mean anything evil when she spoke about him. Yet, she got Saras because she spoke badly. That is enough inspiration for any one of those people who are there to be very careful with what they say. Not to speak bad about anyone or anything. Certainly not about the land of Israel that's been promised by God. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land which is a good land. A land that he's going to deliver to us. They saw. They had the inspiration. But they didn't take Musar. They didn't apply it to themselves. They resisted. Like the Russia, he had all the reasons to apply those lessons that he learned, but he's resisting. He says, no, it's for someone else. It's not for me. They're not willing to apply it. And I think this is the last stage of the growth or the progress and the progression from ignoramus, from someone who has nothing, to the wise person. If all we can figure out is a way to relent, that the, that the wicked one absorbs and doesn't resist and accepts those lessons, right away he is converted into a wise one and he is off and running. He has the attention. He has the inspiration. Now all he needs to do to unlock wisdom is to accept, is to apply it. Attention, inspiration, application, and you have wisdom. And what is the key to achieving this last step, we're told in Rashi, that's Musr. Musr is the skill and the strategies and the tactics and the know-how of taking Torah, of taking inspiration, and finding a way to apply that in your heart. Again, it's not the lesson itself. And my grandfather in his books that he wrote on Musr, he would very frequently invoke this point. Musr is not a distinct discipline outside of Torah. It's a skill in learning how to apply the principles of Torah to you, to take the lessons of Torah that naturally we are resistant to. We all have to go through this stage of being a Russia, of being someone who doesn't want to take the Musr, of being someone who does not want to allow those lessons to penetrate and to pierce his heart his or her heart, and allow them to be to, to be influenced by what they learn, that's how Musr is. It's to break down, to soften the resistance, and to allow the Torah to enter. And once the Torah enters, Torah is very powerful. Torah is very potent. Torah is the wisdom of God. If all you, if you just allow it to enter, if you just remove the obstacles and the resistance and the inhibitions that we have towards Torah, right away, 
you're on your path to becoming wise. That's it. You've accomplished it because Torah is that strong. And it's interesting. We say in the Shema, you should place these words of Torah on your heart. So it's an interesting kind of use of term. On your heart? Place the words of Torah on your heart? Shouldn't the words of Torah be in your heart? And I think maybe this is the answer. The answer is, is that sometimes, most of the time, your heart's not open for business. You, why? Because your heart is inclined to resist. And to repel, it's closed up. It's sealed. Good luck trying to get Torah in it. What do you do? You put the Torah on the heart. And you wait for an opportune moment. Maybe the heart will open for a little bit. And the Torah will just fall in and be absorbed in the heart. There was a a speaker, a very famous speaker who lived in Israel in the 20th century. And he was like an inspirational speaker. He was called a Magid. Inspirational speaker. And he would go from place to place, dispensing musr, dispensing. But he also he he would tell stories and give lessons. He's a very entertaining, very engaging, very charismatic speaker and very popular. And his name was Rabbi Shalom Shwadron. And someone once asked him, "You know, you're, you're coming, you're teaching Torah, and you're teaching musr. But every time I walk into one of your lectures, all I see is everyone laughing because you made jokes." I don't get it. What do you hear? Are you, are you a comedian? Are you coming to teach Torah? So he says to them, no, no, you don't get it. I'm coming to teach Torah. The problem is, is that most people, they close their mouth. They seal it and they throw away the key. They're not willing to absorb it. So what I do is, I tell them jokes. And they laugh. And they open up their mouth. And when it's open, I could stick in a little bit of mustard and maybe, and, and maybe influence them just a little bit. But this kind of shows that this last stage, we don't want to think of ourselves as a Russia. Of course not. Because the classic definition of a Russia, of a wicked person, is someone who sins a lot. Read the Haggadah. What did the person do? He said, what's, what's this Pesach that you're doing? That's a sin? Which one of the 365 sins is that? It's not. It's not a sin. But Russia here is referring to a certain characteristic. It's a certain reticence to and resistance to accept Torah. And, and, and I think there's a very good reason for it. It's always easy for us to always look at other people and say, yeah, people don't listen today. It's very hard for us to look at ourselves and say, we don't listen today. And the reason why is because it's actually quite painful. A Musr is about change. And change is very, very Painful. Because change is a tacit admission of past guilt. The second you say, I need a change, or you're even willing to think in, in practical terms, I'm going to change. Well, what does that mean? What was it living my, my pre- previous 50 years? What was that? Is all this all a failure? And that's why it's, it's actually so hard to do. It's very hard to change. And that's why we have such a wisdom of Musr to try to navigate the labyrinthine defenses that we have in our heart. It's not just that our heart's closed, let's find the key and open it. There's a whole network that we have built up to protect our heart from being influenced. And of course, we don't think about that. 
because it's a scary thing to think about. But to actually change is the most difficult thing in the world. Rabbi Israel Salanter, who founded the Muslim movement, he acknowledged the following astonishing statement. It is easier to finish all of Shas, all of Talmud, than to really change one characteristic. Now, if you study Talmud, you know how hard it is to get through one page of Talmud. Much less 10 pages, much less 100 pages, much less a whole tractate, much less 2,711 pages, all of Talmud. To do all of that, it's easier than to change one character trait. So we don't want to fool ourselves. We have to realize ahead of time, we, if, if we're here, if we're listening, if we're, we have the attention, hopefully we have the inspiration, now the real hard work is at play. Now we have to find a way to deal with this Maginot line that's surrounding our heart. We have to find ways to evade and cleverly maneuver around the defenses to maybe influence the heart just a little bit. You know, my grandfather always writes that sometimes, even if you do something, it actually has a net negative effect. Someone could say, you know what? I'm sold. I'm going to change myself. I'm going to become the wise person. I'm going to over, I'm going to apply it. And they start applying. And it works. Wow. It wasn't even that hard. And what happens right the next day? They see someone who was exactly like the way, the way they were the previous day. So someone says, you know what? I'm going to change my diet. I'm, I'm going to do it. And they do it. And it works. It wasn't so hard. Rabbi Wolby made a mistake. And the next day, they're in the grocery store. And they see someone by the candy aisle. Look at that disgusting human being. Yeah. <laughs> don't they know the carcinogens? Don't they know how bad carbohydrates are? What's wrong with them? And what do you have? Yes, maybe they overcame a little bit of their own challenge. But all they did was supplant it with an even bigger challenge. Now they look down on everyone. So what did you gain? Maybe you lost more than you even gained. And there's also a second peril to navigate. And that is that you might not be changing yourself at all. You might be, in fact, emboldening the enemy. How so? The Yitzhahara, which is the evil inclination, which is called the stone heart, perhaps we could say it is that network of defenses built around our heart. The way it's described in Jewish literature is it's really old, it's a king, and it's very clever. Which means it's older than you, it's much more experienced, it's much more clever than you, and it's king. It's got pole position. You're, 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 you're just an upstart. I have to realize it's an uphill battle. Part of its tactics are to allow you to have a little initial successes and then wait for you to be weakened. You're now emboldened by your success and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm invincible. And what, in fact, what you're doing is you're just going to empower the enemy when they come with a punch. It's going to push you not just to the battle lines the way it, were, it was the day you started, 
but miles behind that. And the way this was compared by Rav Dessler, who was one of the great Muslim masters of the 20th century, he said that the overcoming challenges, really changing, applying lessons of Torah via the mechanisms of Musr to your heart, it's like pushing a wound-up spring. You have a spring, it's wound up, you push it, you push it a little bit, it's not going to give you this backlash. You push it too hard, you try to do too much, you try to bite off more than you could chew, not only is it going to push you back to the starting line, it's going to push you back even further. And thus, we see sometimes, back to the example of someone trying to eat, eat healthier and work on their diet, so it lasts like they're eating salad, just a bag of salad every day, and they feel great, wow, wake up with so much more energy, I do my exercise, and then a week later, they go on a binge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and they're, 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 like, cause they've been salivating the whole week. Every time they pass, every time they pass their, the ice cream, or they, they pass the pantry and they see like, all these cookies, and Oreos, and potato chips, and all these things that they're like, no, I'm gonna overcome it. What actually they're doing is, because it's so hard, they're just adding more things to the shopping cart to be consumed when binge time comes. And then they actually weigh themselves two weeks later and they gain weight. It's crazy. I suffered for a week and I gained weight. Crazy. And that's a classic example of how difficult it is and how, how, how clever we have to be in trying to navigate these problems. To be the, the, the Russia in the, in the Haggadah is someone doesn't necessarily mean evil. Remember, you ha- they already, they're interested. And they're intelligent enough to hear what you have to say. But there's resistance. And they may not even be aware of this resistance. It may just be kind of subconsciously. They're resisting because we all resist to change. We're much more comfortable with the way things are and the way things were then the way things maybe look better in the future. And that's that's primarily, I think, where, where most of us are, hopefully. And Musser, well, that's the wisdom that's there to navigate this particular problem. It's not a new form of Torah. There's no such thing as Musser outside of Torah. Musser is not self-help. Musser is not like, well, there's... Buddhist self-help, and then there's Hindu self-help, and then there's Confucius self-help, and then there's Stoic self-help, and then there's, oh, there's Musser self-help. No, Musser is the Torah's tools to navigate the problems inherent in trying to get the Torah's lessons and ideals and practices and priorities and values into our recalcitrant heart. My grandfather used to say that one of the principles of, of studying and abiding and heeding to Musser is that every single step in growth in Musser, in any area, must be accompanied by a concomitant growth in humility. So if you take one step in kindness, or one step in your diet, or one step in whatever, there has to be a second step that comes along with it that is... Humility. Because otherwise, you're probably going to lose more than you gained. And also, he would laud doing small actions. 
small steps. Nibble a little bit. Don't awaken the beast too much by trying to push the spring too hard. You push it a little bit, it doesn't evoke tremendous backlash. Enough you can handle it. So those two kind of steps to, those are general principles, of course, within every characteristic. There's more that we need to, to know about. But this is, I think, a good introduction to what Musser is. Musser is the keys to implementing the last step of the three steps of growth needed to achieve wisdom. By wisdom, we, we mean the adopting the ideals of Torah. And I like to use the four sons of the Haggadah Seder as an illustration of a certain progression. You got to first have the attention. If you don't have the attention, good luck trying to teach any lessons. We have to be awakened to even the whole idea of Torah and what it is, where it comes from, what could it do for us. The next step is studying the Torah. And that could be by studying it yourself, studying with a friend, studying by class, going to a lecture, listening to a podcast, whatever it is, it's now you're acquiring the lessons. However, that is not where it ends. We know we, we, we're filling. There's two phones. There's one on the head. There's one on the arm next to the heart. And these are emblematic of the two stages of Torah. Once you're awakened, once you have the attention to Torah, well, the stage one is to learn it, to be inspired, to get it into your brain. Stage two is trying to figure out a way to get it into your heart. And that is why we have one tefillin on our head to symbolize the beginning, so to speak, of our journey to Torah. It's more theoretical, it's more abstract, it's more intellectual. It doesn't bleed into who we really are and how we behave and how we live our life. But the next step is, okay, once you have the Torah in your head, find a way to integrate it into your heart. And to do that, we are given muster to achieve that goal and to navigate those perilous waters.